0: This discussion regarding the Spanish Inquisition is set to cover the institution's fall, before retrospectively looking back at the effects of Spain's 300-year-long social control experiment. We'll begin, though, by finishing the story of the Inquisition, before then going on to unpack its legacy. We've already witnessed how the Inquisition constantly contorted itself in order to find a new nemesis, Such actions were necessary to maintain its purpose, as well as its funding streams. If you were to make a television show about the Inquisition, you could easily get five seasons without repeating the main villain featured in each season. But after successful campaigns against the Conversos, Old Christians, Protestants, Moriscos, and Witches, they were running out of others to cast in the villain role. The beginning of the literal end of the Holy Office occurred during the occupation of Spain by Napoleon Bonaparte's brother Joseph. One of the first acts of the newly crowned King Joseph was for the French regime to abolish the Holy Offices of the Inquisition on December 4, 1808. Following the subsequent defeat of the Bonapartes, King Ferdinand VII restored the Spanish Inquisition in 1814. But this was done more in name than reality, and the resurrection of the institution didn't result in an outpouring of love at the reappearance of the Inquisitors. Their institution had only existed because of the continuous fear that they had stoked in the hearts of the Spaniards. As part of their propaganda, they presented themselves as the dam that held back the darkness of the devil. The French conquest had given the Spaniards a chance to experience life without that dam, and it turns out that it was pretty good. In fact, there hadn't been any massive societal upheaval during the six years without the Inquisition. Liberal opposition from within Spain arose in 1820, and the king was forced to again dismiss the institution, this time once and for all. Officially, it was the government of Queen Isabella II that passed the final decree of suppression on July 5th, 1834. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives to assist in the teaching of history. This is the fourth of five episodes in our series on the Spanish Inquisition. Episode number four, The End of the Inquisition. Why wasn't there more support for an institution that had surely been amongst the most popular Spanish organizations for the majority of its 300 years of existence? Foreign commentators from the period universally agreed on the impressive support granted to it by the populace of Spain. But some of that popular support may have been given out of necessity rather than love. The auto de fe's were unquestionably cannot miss moments in a town's history, but maybe this was more than just the entertainment factor. The Spanish Inquisition was the enforcement mechanism for the creation of an ideal Spanish society. If you didn't fit in, for instance, not supporting the auto de fe as intensely as your neighbors, the enforcers could quickly be turned upon you. Situations like this resulted in a bandwagon effect. the 1994 Genocide of Rwanda offers one of the simplest to understand examples of how the bandwagon effect can affect individuals. When combat broke out in the streets, Hutu members would drag Tutsi families from their homes and proceed to hack them to death with machetes. While there were surely many Hutus that had little to no desire to participate in the slaughter of their neighbors, remaining a bystander translated to support for the Tutsis. Once the carnage was over, the predators that weren't satiated would turn their attention to the bystanders and their families. Realization that standing on the sideline could result in machetes being turned on their own families resulted in many Hutus that were against the killing to then partake in the murders, i.e. to join the bandwagon to avoid becoming the next target. In the same vein, speaking out against the Inquisition or skipping an auto de fe would bring the eye of the Inquisition upon your family. To prevent this from happening, most Spaniards outwardly professed love and support for every single action of the Holy Office, no matter how trivial. This is likely why there were no significant writings by any intellectual from Spain against the offices of the Inquisition. Surely, during genuine moments of crisis, the actions of the Holy Office were widely championed. However, the Inquisition was never designed nor funded in a way that would allow it to remain quietly in the background until an emergency surfaced. For most areas of the country, the Spanish Inquisition was a dreary fog that hung over society, but one that did very little. After its explosive entry into Spain's history via the clearing out of Spain's Jewish citizens, it slipped quietly into the stream of daily life until it had finally run its course. The lasting image of the Inquisition was left to be defined by others. Since the 16th century, opponents of the tribunal had ruthlessly assaulted it via the printing press. The Grand Inquisitor's office refused to get drawn into these debates. Their obsession with secrecy and non-disclosure meant that hardly any outsiders had any clue what the Inquisition's rules and rationale were. By refusing to get pulled into any public debate or offering up a defense for their actions, they left the field wide open to its enemies to determine its place in history. The Protestants were the ones that were the most successful at defining the Inquisition. The general term for this propaganda is known as the Black Legend of the Inquisition. The origin of that legend can be best attributed to Antonio del Coro, a Spanish Lutheran who wrote under the pseudonym Regaldinus Gonzávinus Montanus. Del Coro claimed insider knowledge for his book, a discovery and plain declaration of sunry, subtil practices of the Holy Inquisition of Spain. Historians have determined that his claim of being a victim of the Inquisition is the first of many falsehoods that he published in 1567. The picture he painted of the Inquisition is of a wholly corrupt institution, with every Inquisition official as venile and deceitful, and that every single victim of the holy office was innocent. The punishments that he describes as well as his representation of the Inquisition state of their jails are notably false. Unfortunately, most histories written by contemporary scholars relied upon the insider account of Del Coro as their definitive source. True historical scholarship requires you to look at the available information while divesting yourself of the emotion that it invokes. With that in mind, let's look at the effects of the Spanish Inquisition. We'll start with where the Inquisition began with the Spanish Jews. The Jews were the first casualty of the Spanish Inquisition. Those that were unwilling to convert were forcibly banished in 1492. Those that departed found their new homes just as uninviting as the one they had left. Many ended up returning to Spain to join the growing ranks of the conversos. While many believed that they could continue to practice their cultural traditions at the minimum, and at most Judaism in secret, The Spanish Inquisition succeeded in eradicating both the Jewish culture and faith over the course of a century. This period experienced the highest rates of executions and torture. Jews managed to come back to the Iberian Peninsula in 1704, when England took the city of Gibraltar during the War of Spanish Succession. The Spaniards attempted to negotiate a treaty condition upon England that no Jews or Muslims would be allowed to reside in the city of Gibraltar. The Brits honored this treaty agreement in the same manner that the Spanish had adhered to their treaty agreements with Muslims following the fall of Granada. And by 1717, there were 300 new Jewish families there, with their own synagogue. By the 19th century, the Jews were a healthy one-tenth of the population of the Rock of Gibraltar. The end of the Inquisition did not mean an end to anti-Semitism for Spain. The only surviving memory of the once-thriving Jewish communities in Aljamaras were the San Benitos with Jewish names hanging up in local parishes. The right-wing government that took over Spain which came to a head in the Franco dictatorship, adopted the nationalistic view of the Jews as the prototype enemy, sometimes distinct from and at other times identified with the Freemasons, the Illuminati of that era. While there was a deep effect upon the Jewish people, there was a much less significant effect upon the Spanish people themselves. Despite the Inquisition having the best records of any modern-day tribunal, it remains impossible to get an accurate count of how many individuals were sentenced to death by the Inquisition. The first historian to take on this Herculean task was Lorente. His study was published at the beginning of the 19th century, and he posited that the overall figure of victims of the Inquisition were 340,592. Of those, 31,913 individuals were relaxed, the favored term for execution by the Inquisition. Returning to Lorente's numbers, 17,659 were burnt in effigy, and 291,000 were reconciled or given minor sentences. Within fifty years, however, historians had begun to doubt the Spaniards' numbers. His blunder, according to those that followed up on his work, was that he assumed the Inquisition's criminal prosecutions were constant throughout the three hundred years of the Holy Office. Therefore, whenever records were unaccounted for, Lorente took the average of what had happened prior and assumed consistency, filling the average into the gaps. Extrapolating an average disregards the fact that the Inquisition had clear and distinct phases, by far the deadliest of which was in the beginning, as they were dealing with Judaizing conversos. The best numbers come from a study by Catholic author Joseph Carl Heffely, who along with Peschgal believed that the amounts burnt between 1481 and 1481 and the death of Queen Isabella in 1504 represented no more than 2,000. By that point of time, Judaizing had largely disappeared from Spain, and the Inquisition shifted its attention to old Christians and Protestants, neither of which were relaxed at high rates. Moriscos were treated as threats to the state, rather than as heretics, which in turn found them placed in prison rather than tied to the stake at an auto de fe. Finally, we discussed in great length in our previous episode at how few witches the Inquisition burned. Still, Hefley doesn't have a way to figure out how to calculate the missing periods in the historical record. The most serious efforts at calculating the exact number of victims of the Spanish Inquisition go to Aime Contreras and Gustav Henningsen. They estimate that between the years 1540 and 1700, the Holy Office only arrested 49,092 individuals. That's not anywhere near the 340,000 that Lorente originally suggested. They also believe that there were a total of 125,000 trials that took place, which is one-third the number of what Lorente calculated. Contreras and Henningsen break down the numbers further, revealing that unseemly talk and blasphemy were the number one charges, accounting for 27% of all Inquisition criminal accusations. Next came Mohammedism at 24,000, third was Judaism at 10,000, fourth was Lutheranism at 8,000, and lastly superstitions of various kinds including witchcraft made up 5% of the Inquisition cases after the Conversos era. The death penalty was administered in 3.5% of the cases, but only 1.8% of the condemned were executed, as the rest were burned in effigy. This was necessary not only because the accused resided in another nation, but many times it was because they were already dead prior to the trial. In other words, between 1540 and 1700, a period of 160 years, it is likely that the Inquisition sent just 810 individuals to their death. Factoring in the prior era of conversos, it is likely that the 300-year institution of the Spanish Inquisition was responsible for handing out less than 10,000 death sentences. By way of comparison, the religious wars in Europe accounted for tens of thousands of victims. France's St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre alone killed 3,000 over the course of just three days. At the end of the 19th century, the novelist Juan Verlera exclaimed, "...all the Moors, Jews, and heretics arrested and burnt in Spain in the course of 300 years by no means equal the number of witches burnt in Germany." Spain's avoidance of these religious conflicts, which is largely credited to the presence of the Inquisition, likely saved lives. Still, this doesn't excuse the individual tragedies that occurred at the behest of the Holy Office, as Pope John Paul II issued a Declaration of Memory and Reconciliation in which the Catholic Church asked to be pardoned for the excesses committed by the Inquisition. A reading of the document, however, leaves one with the impression that the abuses committed, regrettable in themselves, were indeed less numerous than those of other religions during the same period. At the time the Inquisition was formed, there were no modern liberties anywhere in Europe. Every state indulged in intolerance. The Inquisition, rather than taking liberties away, merely prolonged the lack of rights already inherent to the time. A thorough examination shows that the Inquisition sent significantly less men and women to their deaths. This is true even if you include the considerable longevity of the Holy Office versus the suddenness that was part and parcel for every other nation's similar purges. The Inquisition's reach went beyond the burnings at the Auto de Fe, however. While most Spaniards never interacted once during their entire life with the Holy Office, the mere existence of the Inquisition constrained their natural freedoms of thought and expression. Astonishingly, a study by Jordi Vidal Robert in 2014 found that the Inquisition had no effect on the levels of societal trust or social polarization. Despite the existence of anonymous denouncements that resulted in the literal risk of your life and limbs, Spaniards never turned against each other. This indicates that they believed in both the purpose of the Inquisition and in its capacity to successfully carry that purpose out. The homogenous religious nature of the country and the longevity of the organization likely played a significant role in this fact. Remember that the Inquisition's 300-year-long lifespan is longer than the entire history of the United States of America. At the end of the Inquisition, Torquemada is further in the past in Spain than George Washington is in America's past. So what were the actual effects of the Holy Office, then? I'll begin with its impact on Spanish literature. 1440 witnessed the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg. Prior to this point, books had to be copied by hand individually. Typically, that hand holding the quill belonged to a Catholic monk. This allowed the Catholic Church to easily repress notions that it found objectionable. The printing press broke down this system of control. By the mid-1500s, wealthy individuals across Europe were not only able to obtain copies of their favorite books, they were able to get their own works published. In Spain, however, individuals ran the risk of offending the Inquisition if they published the quote-unquote wrong thing. Spaniard Antonio de Alraz wrote in September 1559, that the times are such that one should think carefully before writing books. Losing control, the church began to reach into the past in order to reestablish their control. They began the practice of banning books in 1515 at the Lateran Council. The practice became official church doctrine during the influential Council of Trent in 1564. England entered the fray in 1538 via its publication of licensing laws, and the 1540s witnessed various Italian authorities artificially limiting what could be published. Spain, on the other hand, began to ban books in 1558, meaning that it was considerably late to the censorship party. That year, 1558, was a significant year for the Inquisition, as it was the year that a cell of Protestants had been discovered within the borders of Spain. Worse, they were doing as their faith demanded and had been found to be actively evangelizing their faith within their communities. The first censorship law was enacted on September 7th as a direct reaction to the realization that the Protestants had successfully infiltrated their homeland. That law only initially applied to Castile. It had three effects. First, it banned the importation of all books printed from other Spanish realms. Secondly, it obliged printers to seek permission in the form of a license from the Council of Castile before publishing any books. And third, it laid down a strict procedure for the operation of future censorship. There were some noticeable weaknesses within this legislation. First, it only applied to Castile. And secondly, most Spaniards could simply ignore it. Something that they did in droves by publishing without permission and illicitly smuggling in books from other regions. In fact, evidence shows that 40% of available literature in Spain during this era was of the unlicensed variety. One would assume that the harsh punishment apparatus that was the Spanish Inquisition would undoubtedly deter such actions. But there is no evidence that any author or printer, besides those condemned as Protestants, were ever sent to the stake. The same could not be said for nations such as England and France during this same time period. Once again, serving to show us that despite their reputation, the Spanish Inquisition appears to have been far less crazed than their peers. Eventually, the laws of Castile, ineffective as they were, were spread to the rest of the provinces of Spain. And in 1558, the Inquisition was ordered to officially put together and post an index of banned books. It was put together with all haste, as religious works dominated the earliest era of the printing press. In fact, it is estimated that three-fourths of all of the books published between 1445 and 1520 were works of a religious nature. By the summer of 1559, Spain had publicly registered approximately 700 forbidden books, the biggest category of which were written in Latin. Showcasing their fear of outsiders, there were only seven books on the entire index that were not published from a foreign nation. There are two distinct opinions about the impact that the Inquisition had upon Spanish literature. Traditional historians believe that there was zero negative effect brought about by the presence of the Inquisition. Historian Mendez E. Palayo asserted that never was there more written in Spain or better written than during the two golden centuries of the Inquisition. Masterpieces like Don Quixote, written in 1605, stand out during this exact time period. The non-traditionalist view, which comes from modern studies, is that the Spaniards virtually ceased to write and think during this era. They point to the strides that other European nations made, which serves to remind all that there is no Spanish equivalent of England's Shakespeare. Unfortunately, the available evidence doesn't clearly validate either viewpoint as correct. Most of the books that were prohibited were never within the financial reach of a typical Spanish reader, and thus were never physically available in large numbers anywhere on the peninsula. The indexes, in this way, were more of a guide of what the Inquisition would like to prohibit. While there may not have been the extreme damage that the modern historians allege, there likely was undetectable damage done, as writers surely exercised self-censorship to avoid running afoul of their publishers. Unfortunately, it's impossible to quantify the damage of this. Some of the same historians that believe self-censorship occurred also believe that writers worked their way around it by utilizing coded language that would allow their readers to interpret the true meaning of the work. Regrettably, they didn't see fit to include a code detector with every purchase. Besides the indexes, Spain also instituted prior authorization edicts, that required a work of literature to receive pre-approval from the Inquisition. This is reminiscent of the way that censorship occurs today in the People's Republic of China. There, everything that appears on air or in print must first be run by a government censor in order to receive approval. This podcast shows that that apparatus remains up and running as it has received nearly 100,000 downloads from more than 100 nations. Why do I say such a thing? Well, in China, it has received exactly one listen from the nation's 1.7 billion inhabitants. It seems as though my critical look at Mao Zedong didn't help my listener numbers. A couple of incentives were provided to encourage authors to go along with the prior authorization requirements. First, if there was anything objectionable within your work, you would rather deal with a publisher rather than an inquisitor. Secondly, the author was granted exclusive privilege for 10 years from the day that authorization was received. This is similar to how drug companies today have an exclusive time period guaranteeing them a major profit before generic drugs are allowed to legally knock off their formula. The financial protections granted to an author may have offset the literary damage done via any self-censorship that may have occurred. What was unequivocally lost were works written in Hebrew and Arabic as Spain's acceptance of censorship ultimately led them down the slippery slope towards the hideous practice of book-burning. The Middle Ages and early modern periods were filled with book-burning incidents. Religion played a leading role in the act, with Martin Luther torching Catholic works, while the Vatican countered by incinerating anything published by Protestants. In fact, Wikipedia has its own entry dedicated to cataloging history's largest purges of literature. Spain's earliest book-burning occurs in 1509 in Navarre. The purpose of this was to aid the eradication of Arabic texts after the Granada uprisings. In 1567, King Philip II ordered all Moriscos to burn their own books written in Arabic this was highly problematic for more reasons than you may think. In the Islamic faith, the Quran is viewed as a living entity, much in the same way the Catholics treat the Eucharist as the living body of their God. The Islamic faith dictates in detail how to correctly dispose of a Quran if it's damaged in some manner. The ceremony prescribed is complex and closely resembles a sacred funeral. While burning is one of the available disposal options, you can imagine that the Moriscos were not too excited to destroy their sacred book. Many scholars believe that it was the burning order by King Philip that directly led to the Second Granada Uprising. Despite that rebellion, more than one million works in Arabic were destroyed. Only the books regarding medicine were given a death row pardon, as they were shipped off to the University of Alcala for safekeeping. By 1511, all Arabic books were banned throughout Spain. Targeted action then followed. In 1585, the Inquisition waged war against the collective works of Pascal Vassallo, a Maltese Dominican friar whom the Inquisition had deemed an obscene homoerotic poet. And yes, I quickly searched for a copy of his translated poems and regrettably came up empty-handed. The desire to eliminate texts that they disagreed with traversed the Atlantic, as New Spain's Inquisition burned Mayan imagery and codices, as well as a Spanish study of the Aztec culture prior to the conquistadors' arrival. The social control desires of the Inquisition are made obvious through the works that were included in the indexes. On the third such one, for instance, several fictional works were banned alongside prominent Protestant Jewish and Islamic works. The Inquisition clarified that the fictional works were banned because they were written without skill and are full of improbabilities. Therefore, it is a waste of time to read them. Don Quixote saw just one sentence censored, despite the fact that its ancient Catholic hero was protected by his loyal Muslim squire and friend. The problematic line that was removed represented a Protestant viewpoint, which asserted that charitable works performed with tepid enthusiasm and laxicity have no merit and no value. Ordinary Spaniards seemed to ignore all of this. Many authors avoided the licensing and censorship process because of the delays that they caused, indicating that they feared economic loss of revenue more than they worried about falling afoul of the Inquisitors. Meanwhile, Spanish writers were not restricted in any way when they were publishing books abroad. Ironically, Spain was the only nation on earth at this time that allowed for international publishing devoid of restrictions. Even more ironically, these unrestricted and unreviewed international publications by Spaniards were subsequently then imported back into Spain. I imagine there are few, if any, examples of a criminal organization illegally laundering literature making this the closest thing that history has to a book-laundering scheme. The evidence is so mixed that I will let you decide whether literature was harmed or not. It is clear, however, that the Inquisition attempted to control what Spaniards were reading. It is less obvious if they had any direct effect or not. Either way, the damage or lack thereof likely wasn't significant. the impact on science was also largely indirect, as its study was not ingrained in the consciousness or hearts of the Spanish people at the time of the Inquisition's arrival. Religion and scientific understanding oftentimes find themselves at odds. I like to explain this to my students with examples regarding the Catholic practice of exorcism. The Catholic Church still has 100 priests that actively exorcise demons from the world, The number of demonic evictions performed, however, have dramatically declined. This is because our understanding of science has replaced religious rationalizations. Take, for instance, seizures, which are oftentimes triggered within individuals who appear to both look and feel perfectly fine. Once a seizure is set off, however, that healthy person suddenly collapses to the ground and begins convulsing oftentimes to the point of foaming at the mouth. Now, if you're not aware of what a seizure is, it's easy to suppose that a demon is contained within that person, struggling violently to take control. And that was the viewpoint of the church, all the way up until the latter half of the 20th century, as exorcisms were a common practice for treating seizures, including epilepsy. If you evaluate Spain during this time period against its pure nations, it doesn't rate highly regarding science. In fact, Spain had the least number of university-affiliated scientists. Physician Juan de Cabrada lamented his nation's lack of progression in 1687 when he wrote that it was sad and shameful that, like savages, we have to be the last to receive the innovations and knowledge that the rest of Europe already has. Manuel de la Ravilla felt that the Spanish intolerance, even more than their depotism, had ruined the scientific culture of his homeland. While Spain may have influenced the world of literature, there was no such effect on the world of science, as the Inquisition helped to enforce Spain's scientific black hole. Of course, the truth of the matter was that the homogeneous Catholic nation that Ferdinand and Isabella sought... ...was always going to block any scientific advancement that was deemed to be at odds with the church. The Inquisition's largest contribution to the hindrance of science... ...was the expulsion of some of the most dynamic forces living within Spain's borders. Jews, conversos, Muslims, and moriscos were all restricted in professions... ...limiting what they could pursue... Furthermore, mass expulsions limited the pool of individuals that could be called upon to provide students to their limited universities. While the Inquisition carried out and championed the expulsions, it did not order them. Some of the blame has to sit at the feet of the Master which let the Inquisition off of its chain. The Inquisition was not wholly intolerant of science. It took nine years after the Vatican trial of Galileo for Spain to place his works on a banned index. Meaning that long after his conviction, Spaniards could still access his theories regarding the heliocentric universe. Those indexes also prohibited the works of Kepler and Copernicus, but not because of their scientific claims. Kepler, for instance, was banned because he referred to the King of England as the defender of the Christian faith, which of course was something that the Catholic Inquisition couldn't believe after Henry VIII had abandoned Catholicism to form his own faith. As early as 1492, Isabella understood that the policies they pursued would negatively alter the economic trajectory of Spain. The conversos formed the backbone of many white-collar industries in Spain, while the moriscos were the majority of blue-collar workers in the rural areas of the kingdom. Each time expulsion policies were pursued, the economy took a tumble. However, it was during this same period that Spain's economy became the greatest in the world. Spain was able to survive the downturns caused by its policies because the state benefited enormously during the 16th centuries from their colonies in the New World. The massive influx of gold from Latin America infused the crown with more than enough money to survive its xenophobic policies. In fact, Spain was so flushed with cash that the establishment of capitalism throughout the Spanish Empire was delayed. In fact, Spanish prices remained the highest in Europe for the time period that we're studying. Wages across Spain kept pace with the rising prices as demand for new world goods skyrocketed. That wasn't the case everywhere else in Europe, as the disparity between prices and wages increased. The lack of high wages in other nations allowed those European companies to make such a profit that they were able to reinvest it back into their businesses. The act of which created more efficiency, which in turn created more capital, which then proceeded to result in the rise of capitalism. This never happened in Spain. As wages kept pace with rising prices, profits were lowered, as was the accumulation of capital. Spanish businessmen never had the excess capital to reinvest into their factories, and for that reason, Spain delayed its move into the capitalist era. Despite the nation having a commercial monopoly, other European nations' cheap goods soon displaced the Spanish ones in the markets of the Americas. The gap was so extreme that it became worth it for the colonial government in Mexico to invoke the anger of its mother nation over the buying of cheaper British goods. There were other contributing economic factors related to the Holy Office. For instance, a 2014 analysis found that the Inquisition is associated with a negative 3 to 5% correlation with urbanization, meaning that less Spaniards migrated to cities during the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. The assumption behind the finding is that the Inquisition was more active within heavy population centers. And this is important as urban centers tended to act as centers for economic growth during these eras, meaning that the Inquisition slowed, or at least hindered, the development of a modern Spanish economy. Additionally, it's been found that the Spanish adopted newer technology at a far lesser rate than their peers, once again impeding their own economic well-being. Next, we'll examine how the establishment of the Inquisition affected Spain's holdings in the New World. Spanish America was divided into vice royalties. New Spain, with Mexico City as its capital, included what is now the southwest of the United States, all of Mexico and Central America, as well as the Caribbean islands of Santo Domingo, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. The second Viceroyalty was named New Castile, with Lima, Peru, acting as its capital. That domain included almost all of South America, minus Portugal's Brazil and the French-slash-British-held Guianas. New Castile was forced to break up even further, however, which resulted in New Granada being formed in 1610, with Cartagena as its capital. This realm included Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, and part of Ecuador. It was further subdivided in 1776 when Rio de la Plata was formed with the territories of Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, with Buenos Aires serving as the capital. For inexplicable reasons that have never been explained to me, the Philippines were part of the original Viceroyalty of New Spain. Jews and conversos featured prominently in nearly every Spanish conquest of the New World. Columbus had at least six conversos with him on his first voyage across the Atlantic, including Luis de Torres as his chief interpreter. Jewish soldiers were with Cortes when he completed the conquest of the Aztecs. The Inquisition, however, sought to end this. They attempted to bar all conversos from reaching the shores of the New World by instituting rules that only a fourth-generation Catholic could obtain passage on a voyage across the Atlantic. This effectively eliminated anyone who had converted to Christianity during the mass conversion eras. This test of blood purity failed, however, as conversos were able to buy permits of exemptions from corrupt officials. Others were smuggled aboard by Portuguese Jews who worked as sailors on many of the Spanish ships. The assumption was that the governors would be able to catch them by checking who disembarked at the port of destination. But ship captains skirted this by dropping their converso passengers along secret inlets off the Honduran coast. These actions were so widespread that the Portuguese history books refer to it as the Penetração Portuguesia. In the 1600s, between three and 5,000 Portuguese conversos arrived in the New World, and approximately 2,000 of them settled in New Spain. By the 1630s, conversos lived in almost every town in the overseas Spanish Empire. Thus, it was only a matter of time before the Inquisition followed. The warning sirens were sounded as early as 1508, as bishops in Havana and Puerto Rico informed Spain that the New World was being crammed with conversos, moriscos, and other heretics. It took two decades, But eventually, the first New World auto de fe followed in October of 1528. In the ceremony, two practicing Jews were relaxed, while two more were reconciled and converted. Official Inquisition branches were soon established for both New Spain and New Castile. The divisions operated in near-identical forms as their Iberian counterparts. What was different, however, was the religious zeal of their constituents. Edicts of grace were mostly ignored by residents in the Americas, and it was exceptionally rare for one neighbor to denounce another. For the unlucky few that were implicated, the punishments also slightly differed. Instead of being assigned as a gallery rower, for instance, individuals were often forced to serve in New World monasteries. The punishments also became gendered, as women were typically forced to serve in hospitals and it was extremely rare for the New World Inquisition to sentence a heretic to death. This iteration of the Inquisition declined significantly faster than that of the Old World. There was a marked decrease in the severity of punishments given to heretics around 1665. This also included a decline in the amount of confiscated goods seized, the length of jail sentences assigned, as well as fines collected. Remarkably, the conversion of the indigenous peoples was never included within the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. As was the case for full Jews in Spain, the Inquisition ignored the heresy of those that had yet to convert. Franciscan and Dominican missionaries took over that task. The Inquisition only ever participated in the gathering of evidence against native converts that stepped outside the boundaries of Catholic dogma, of which there were plenty, as the indigenous peoples had zero experience with Christianity. This made it extremely difficult for natives to conceal themselves as false converts. Unlike prior adherents of Judaism and Islam, their tribal beliefs had literally nothing in common with that of their conquerors. The punishment and conversion of the local people was pursued with the same level of enthusiasm and punishment by the local missionaries as they would have had the Inquisition been more involved. They had just outsourced it to the other religious orders." As we come to an end in our studies regarding the Spanish Inquisition, we discover that the legacy of the Holy Office is far different than most of us have been led to believe. Protestant propaganda and our own failure to dive into the distinctions between the medieval Inquisition and the Spanish Inquisition still maintains a firm grip over the legacy of the institution. Founded in 1478, the Spanish Inquisition directly aided Ferdinand and Isabella's goal to create a homogenous Catholic nation subservient to the monarchy. Supported by mass conversions and expulsions, the Inquisition terrorized conversos, moriscos, and Protestants for more than 300 years. The Holy Office attempted, with mixed results, To serve as a social control apparatus via their systems of public denunciations, elaborate public executions, and imposing indirect control over the arts of literature and science. The torture was limited, but the secrecy that shrouded the Inquisition resulted in the historical record assuming and only acknowledging the worst abuses of the holy office. When looked at through the dispassionate eyes of a historian unaffected by the practices of the Inquisition, one sees an organization that was far more regimented and thoughtful in the pursuit of their mission. The West shows the value of a multicultural society, causing us to subconsciously reject the Spanish Inquisition's mission to usher in a golden era of absolute rule in Spain. The stability created by the Inquisition allowed the nation to keep out the Protestant religious wars that caused far more death and destruction across the European continent. And finally, it was far more lenient to a number of the dark arts, including the art of witchcraft, than any of its European peers. I hope that you've enjoyed our series on the Spanish Inquisition. I have to admit my own disappointment that it was not filled with more stories of dark torture, but the truth is oftentimes far more fascinating than history's imagination. Until next time, keep working to uncover the truth of the world. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowery at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.